Hey, hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer. I just like the name of that. <laughs> yeah, I know, man. And Simple Homebrewing. Both are still available at all your finest retailers, so go out and buy a couple of copies for us. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out. All right, and on today's episode, we're going to head into the pub because we've got a couple of beer news stories to cover. You know, some unfortunate stories, some interesting stories, and some, well, questions. Before we head into the brewery to talk about some of the stuff that we've been playing with, some of the stuff we've been reading about in terms of brewing, and uh, one of the things I'm about to do, as well as a triumphant return, maybe, to the brewing world. (laughs) Yeah, maybe. And then in the lounge, we're talking to a winner. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. It's a return guest, Chuck Macaluso, and he's going to tell us all about his winning tips, tricks, and secrets to how you could become the Oregon State Home Brewer of the Year. Assuming you live in Oregon. Assuming you live in Oregon. Step one. That's right. Hey, but before we do any of that stuff, we're going to take a quick break here so you can listen to these messages from our sponsors. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric home brewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in home brewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves workflow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3,300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high-powered built-in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three-year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grainfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grainfather.com.
Welcome back, everybody. We're going to kick things off here with an announcement from Drew. And the announcement is, if you haven't checked your podcast player feed, go back. Last week, we released an episode where I sat down and talked with Peter Simons about oat malt stout and its knockoff cousin, the oatmeal stout. Now, if, like me, you're surprised by that order, well, then go listen to the episode because you'll learn something else. Like, can you actually make an oat malt stout without any roasted malts? And it turns out you can. Yeah, man, when it comes to stuff like that, Peter is the guy. He knows everything about everything, it seems like. Yeah, and, of course, we also talk about how linseed oil can help keep you flowing, shall we say. So go (laughs) give that episode a listen. Uh, and learn how to make an oat malt or an oatmeal stout, including the very oldest fashion of the styles. And don't forget that things are happening online, and they're also now starting to happen in person. But first, an online event that's coming up, the Women's International Beer Summit. You can go to wcfa.beer. You can register to join the three-day conference. It's going to be April 22nd, the 23rd, and the 24th online. And again, that's go to wcfa.beer to register For the Women's International Beer Summit, there's going to be all sorts of great speakers, all sorts of panels, and then two dumb lugs. (laughs) Yeah, we're going to do something. Uh, We're not exactly sure what. So uh, it's going to be magical. Yeah, right. (laughs) It's going to be magical. At the very least, you can hop online and laugh at us. Uh, But there's an in-person event coming up, too. June 23rd through 25th, HomebrewCon will be happening in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Uh, Registration opens in, let me see, I'm looking at the website here, 15 days, 19 hours, 37 minutes, and 10 seconds. Oh, 9 seconds, uh, 8 seconds. Oh, time is flying. Better get in there. Uh, You can't register for the conference yet, but you can reserve a hotel room and start making plans to be there. We're going to be there. We'll be recording a live podcast there like we always do. So we hope we see you there. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA, Amazon, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It is Canines for Warriors, a great organization that takes rescue dogs and uh, trains them to be companions for uh, wounded warriors, people who have suffered from uh, sexual trauma, various wounds. Uh, just, you know, it's dogs and it's helping vets. I don't see how it can get much better than that. So please go to the website, experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link and throw us a few bucks that we can pass along to them there you go and of course it's time for your feedback Feedback. we have one quick piece of feedback today from jason bittner who wrote in to say i was listening to episode 140 where you were talking about texas brewing shutting down the store for retail sales and you'll remember our good friends over at texas brewing over there in fort worth they've shut down the mainline store focusing more on their pro sales but also still doing uh, doing retail shipment of homebrew ingredients. So the storefront is now closed. Jason continues on to go, that is the second store to close in the area. Homebrew headquarters closed in September of 2021, leaving Dallas without a store, and now Texas Brewing in Fort Worth. This leaves the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex homebrew community without a local shop. Do you have a recommendation for what to do to, for getting supplies? And boy, howdy. Yeah, no, that that, that is really bad. Uh, I mean, honestly... If you don't have a local shop, then where else do you go? You go to 
You go to the folks out there like Adventures in Homebrewing, Atlantic Homebrew Supply, More Beer, uh, Northern Brewer. Uh, Denny, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't see that there's uh, much choice, although... Obviously, I believe that DeFalco's in Houston shut down. I'm just trying to think if there's any place I know of that's closer. And I don't. That doesn't mean that there isn't. But, yeah, man, you're going to have to mail order something or plan on going for a drive and pulling a trailer to load up for a year's worth of supplies. Well, and this is a very good point uh, for all of our listeners who are in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. If you have any better ideas, because we don't know all the homebrew shops in the area. We don't know the distances, the geography, the lay of the land. Uh, let us know. Write us in at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and tell me what's the what. Yeah, let us know what you're doing for your brewing supplies and uh, maybe we can help out. Indeed. And now that we've had our feedback done, I think it's time for a couple of, dare I say it, classy beers. Ooh, classy beers. We're going to head over to the pub for some classy beers. We'll be right back, so please stick around. Mecca Grade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mecca Grade. For more information, please visit MeccaGrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my work to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the work to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art. They're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Welcome back, everybody. We have made our way over here to the pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere, somewhere in cyberspace, and we are having a couple beers and uh, a couple of my favorites today, man. So, Drew, why don't you talk about what you're drinking? All right. I'm drinking an absolute classic. I'm drinking an Orval. And the reason why I'm drinking the Orval is a couple of episodes back ago on the Brew Files, we had a talk about Belgian Pale Ale with Tommy Arthur. We were kind of going through a couple of the different styles of Belgian pale ales. And we talked about Deconic, which, of course, is the classic, the Antwerp pale ale that is the cornerstone of the style. We talked about Quok, which is kind of like a stronger version of that same idea. But, you know, the one I totally forgot was Orval. Because at the heart of it, Orval is a pale ale. It just happens to be a pale ale with Britannomyces in it. And it's a little bit stronger than your normal pale ale, but not intensely strong or anything like that. Right. And so... Orval is one of those beers that, I mean, God, uh, just thinking about, like, as an educational experience has been fantastic. I visited the Abbey and the Brewery in 2001, 
and saw how they were doing things then. Got a chance to try the beer up at the little inn at the top of the valley where the Abbey is in. But also, very importantly, got got to really learn that Orval is one of those beers that is ever-evolving and yeah. presents a completely different picture of what the beer is supposed to be over the years that that you have it or that you can hold on to it, and not in a way like, say, a barley wine changes. The, the difference between a fresh Orval and an aged Orval, like, say, three years on it, is astonishing. But all along the way... The beer is always delicious. Yeah. When, when I was in Belgium, I had a chance to have one that was two weeks old, one that was two months old, and one that was two years old. And you would be hard-pressed to even believe it was the same beer. Yeah. I mean, and it's it's bananas. And yeah. it's, it, is a, it is an educational experience that I think that anybody who is obsessed about beer should go through. And one of my problems in putting together that little pale ale talk I was doing is it's becoming increasingly hard to find some of these beers. Uh, very annoyingly. So really, I just found an Orval around here a couple weeks ago. No, but I had like, I had to, I had to send people out all around LA to go find me Orval. Nobody could find a conic. Um, it's just like, wow. Yeah. I haven't seen the conic for a while. That's true. Or quack either for that matter. I, I got my hands on quack, oh. but but this is this is part of the realities of the changing market that we're facing. But now, you're also kind of in the same territory. And again, guys, we do not coordinate these beers. No, we couldn't if we wanted to. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm having a St. Bernardus Triple, which I think is maybe a little bit more available than the Orval or something like that. Uh, interesting story about St. Bernardus. If you don't know, for many, many years, they brewed the beers that West Vleteran was selling to the public. The West Vleteran monks brewed the beers for themselves, but the ones that got sold to the public came from St. Bernardus. Uh, West Vleteran is taking back the production of those beers now and are selling them to the public. But St. Bernardus is still brewing the same beers with pretty much the same ingredients, the same yeast, which originally came from West Vleteran. And as I recall, the West Vleteran yeast originally came from West Mall. Uh, you know, so there's a, there's a real lineage here going on. The St. Bernardus triple is great. It's, it's like about 25 IBUs. It is maybe just a hair sweeter, uh, a little bit more flowery, maybe some honey character, uh, compared to West Mall, but it's still a reasonably dry beer, uh, with it, with a nice dry finish to it. Uh, it's 8%, so it's not like over the top strong. And it's just an all-around good beer. Uh, I, I really love their uh, their Abbott 12, but man, that's just too strong for me most of the time. So the, the triple was kind of like my compromise beer. Yeah, Ab 12, aka the in theory progenitor of Westy 12. Um, important note: part of the reason that uh, Saint Sixtus took back the brewing of the West Lettering beers was because. Uh, the rules for the ITA had changed and required that the beers be produced on the monastery grounds. Um, so I don't think there was any bad blood there. Um, although, you know, it is weird you mentioned that St. Bernardus is more commonly available because over Christmas, the one that kind of floored me was I found their wit beer and their Christmas ale both available in cans, which... Oh, really? I've never seen either one of those. Oh, yeah. So just kind of like St. Bernardus is is now in cans, although I think it's actually shipped in bulk over here to the U.S. and then canned here. 
Ah, sure. That so, can make sense. But yeah, all those St. Bernard spears, they're really well done. They're really approachable. And I also think very importantly, in comparison to, say, like a, a Westie 12, they are both relatively easy to find and pretty damn good values. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're not cheap, but they're uh, they're certainly not like over the top expensive either. No, they're not. And so, it's talking about things that are over the top expensive, and actually a debate that we ran into online that I never really thought about because I think you and I have both pretty much always lived in places where you could buy beer in the grocery store, right? Yeah. And so this was, uh, I think this was largely centered around people talking about beer in the grocery store in Colorado because that was a change recently, and they were. The big debate that we were seeing online was people talking about what happens with the choice that you have available. And, you know, of course, when people started talking about doing grocery sales, oh, hey, look, you'll be able to get local beer in and all this sort of stuff, be able to actually, you know, sort of you know, broaden the market. And all the people that that I saw in this debate were talking about, like, okay, well, one, putting beer in the grocery stores hurts the independent liquor stores, right? You know, all the all the little bottle shops, the crazy ones that may specialize in something weird. You know, they're, they're not going to be in a grocery store in the same way. And so by taking a big bulk of beer sales over to the grocery stores, you're enriching the hands of, say, Safeway, but not the hands of mom and pop around the corner who may have the weird stuff. Um, but also, interestingly, was they said there was a knock-on effect where the choices were actually becoming more and more restricted over time. So, like, when they first started to put the beer in the grocery stores, there was a very broad choice. And over time... The choices become restricted, restricted, restricted. The small guys have gone away, and it's now at least all the regional players are above. Which, of course, if you know anything about how the grocery industry is run, makes absolute perfect sense. Because it is ruthless, fees are outrageous, and it is planned within an inch of its life. Yeah, you know, and I can see that being an issue some places, but I've never really seen that be an issue around here. I, well, again, I think that's just because where we're at, the structure's always been that way. I mean, Safeway's always been Safeway, and you know they they always seem to uh, vacillate back and forth between, ooh, look, we put some local stuff in, and oh, hey, look, now half of our beer case is seltzer water. <laughs> yeah, you know, I guess I'm I'm not seeing that to that extent. Uh, I think Oregon may be a little bit of a different case. Well, maybe, and or maybe these people who claim that all these things are going to happen may be just possibly exaggerating a bit, and uh, they'll just have to wait and see if it really goes that way or not. I, I mean, to me, that the idea of having beer in grocery stores, if you haven't had it before, is great in terms of availability. Um, but again, it depends on how it's done. Uh, you know, if, if you know you suddenly go from. Uh, Picking up a six-pack of Budweiser at a liquor store to picking it up at a grocery store, obviously, it's not going to make much difference. But our grocery stores around here, even the Safeways, uh, Fred Meyer, which is part of the Kroger chain, all of those guys carry beers from small local breweries that we have here, besides you know some of the, the larger offerings. I'm actually seeing several tiers, the really small craft breweries, uh, the bigger ones, you know, like like Boneyard or, or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. And then and then of course the the major breweries, you know, Sam Adams, Budweiser, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. See and my so, and my local Vons, which is part of the Safeway chain. Sure. Uh, they they actually started when they opened up the store that, that I go to. They started with a whole bunch of local LA beer 
And now I think the smallest place I can find on their beer shelves is like modern times. And it's not even LA. It's very strange. Yeah, that really is. And before we leave there, one other thing I did want to point out, uh, point out that I just, just came across my radar as we're recording this, because it also deals with the grocery store, is Athletic, okay, America's largest non-alcoholic craft brewery, just announced today that they were releasing a brand new beer called, an, uh, called Athletic Light. And they're making a light non-alcoholic beer that comes in at 25 calories. So, oh, man. So, yeah, they're going for that kind of that Bud Light Michelob Ultra market type thing. And the reason why I mentioned it because of the grocery stores is they actually are doing all of their exclusive testing online because they, they rolled the product out too late for the spring grocery reset. And so they're going to they're gonna launch it as an online buy it and have it shipped to your house product as opposed and also smaller retailers as opposed to launching into the grocery store. I can go to my Vons and I can buy athletic beer now. It's you know it was like wow that's guys, really cool yeah these guys have grown uh, leaps and bounds but it, this was also another debate because I saw people talking about they didn't understand why anybody would want to drink a a non-alcoholic beer and this will even further fuel that debate <laughs> yeah really man and from that debate we do have one word of note to to put in there uh, that is not so bright and happy. Um, Armand from Dre Fontaine, it was announced uh, yesterday as we're recording, uh, died at the age of 71 due to a, an ongoing battle with cancer that he had. Um, Denny, I don't think you ever met Armand, right? No, I never did. I met Armand twice. Um, and I can tell you that that man was absolutely unbelieving, unbelievably, unflaggingly passionate about Lambic. And, you know, Took a, a restaurant and a, a blendery that he had inherited from his father, uh, and he and his brother kind of grew the business. They survived a really bad case where they blew up something like three thousand bottles of lambic because the thermostat went off in the in the storage area, and the really? bottles and the bottles exploded. They came back from that. They turned it into a spirit, but that man was always always passionate about lambic. The first time I met him. I had randomly bought tickets to Belgium, I think this was like 2004, 2006, round trip from L.A. for under $400 for the next weekend. And it was going to be three and a half days in Belgium. Sure, why not? I'm going to do that. I was young and stupid and could jump on a plane at a moment's notice. No problem. And I showed up there on a Friday. That's when my flight landed. And Dre Fontaine is in, a, is in the town of uh, Beersel. Right, and beer sells kind of in the suburbs of, of Brussels. It's also one of the very big homes of Lambic. And the problem is in order to get from Brussels to, to beer sell, you either have to drive or you have to take the, the, the tram. And the tram doesn't run there on the weekends. So I was going to be there Friday, Saturday, and then leave out sometime late in the afternoon Monday. So my only chance to get out to beer sell was on that Friday when I landed. So I basically rolled into town, dropped my luggage off at a hotel, and grabbed the tram and made it out to Dreyfontaine. And keep in mind, I'm, 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 at this point in time, I don't even have the little bit of beer reputation I have now. I'm like unknown. I'm just a passionate beer geek. And I showed up to the to the cafe. I sat down. I had food. I had beer. And Armand actually came over and introduced himself to me because I was obviously like sitting there with lots of different beer glasses in front of me doing the beer geek thing, taking notes. And we we talked for a while. 
And of course, I'm a lone traveler, and he he doesn't know me from anybody. And he just drags me around the corner and takes me into the into the brewery and shows me all the stuff that they has going on there, walking me through all this process. Again, I'm a complete unknown random dude, and he was just in there trying to to sell his passionate love of lambic. So. That is one of the coolest stories I've ever heard about beer, man. Oh yeah, I mean it was it was like I'm, I flew across the ocean and a continent, and as a complete random dude, and he's just you know having fun showing me showing me his art. And so to say that losing Armand, I mean, it's it's not surprising. I mean, again, he was 71 and he's been battling cancer. To say that losing Armand is actually kind of a big blow to the world of Lambic is underselling it because that man's. That man's lambics, whether they were made with his own work or work from other lambic breweries, because that's what he did a lot of was blending. His touch was always amazing, and so the the beer world is definitely going to miss out both on the touch and on the the deep and abiding passionate love of the of the stuff. That is uh, that is really a stunningly great story, man. Oh, yeah. Great way to remember him. Well, and I'll tell you right now, go out and go. Search your your brewery brewer friends uh, Twitter feeds and Facebook feeds. You're going to find a lot of reminiscences out there about Armand, and all of them are pretty much the same. Uh, obviously, like uh, Tommy Arthur, he's got a, a post up about it, uh, and so is Bob Sylvester from uh, Saint Somewhere. And just go and read the stories. Uh, the beer world has definitely missed out on something with Armand being gone. Wow, great man. Well, at least we have his legacy. Absolutely. I just wish the beer wasn't so expensive. <laughs> it's damn good, though. <laughs> yeah, right. All right. And then a little thing that popped up on our radar, and we just wanted to make sure that we put the word out there that, to get it corrected uh, so that people aren't freaking out. There was a sort of an erroneous announcement. Would that be about the right way to put it? Um, an erroneous announcement and then spreading across the, the Internet like wildfire that club night at HomebrewCon was going to be cut back to two hours. Now, if you've never been to HomebrewCon and you've ever been to Club Night, Club Night is sort of the, for lack of a better way of putting it, the beating heart and soul whole damn thing, at least to me. Uh, it's because it's a chance to see homebrewers being homebrewers and having having fun and, and being proud of what they're showing off and created. And so when the word went out, oh, Club Night's only going to be two hours, people righteously flipped out. Um, and I got to give credit to to Julia because. Uh, she is out there pounding the socials and being proactive, and I've seen messages from her all over the place. And she went on there and uh, corrected it and saying that they were they were moving the window around on it. Um, and it's actually still going to be like three and a half, four hours. And so, you know, they're trying to... It's one of those fine balancing acts between giving everybody enough time to enjoy things and get enough time to get around and see everybody's booths and try a lot of beers without really having people overdo it too much. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's definitely a far cry different than what club night was when, uh, I first started going to HomebrewCon in 2001. And when I think club night was something like six hours and the next day was basically useless. So, <laughs> um, I, I totally get it, but just wanted to make sure that people were out there and saying, Hey, the, the information that went out is not quite correct. So don't freak out so much. And assuming also, you heard, assuming you heard the incorrect information, I never did. So, uh, oh, it, it blew up in my circles quick. Um, but also, again, props to Julia for getting getting out there in front and talking with people. And one last piece of beer news uh, that I thought was really interesting: 
because uh, it's not really beer news so much. It's whiskey news, but it's still beer news. How does this work? Uh, Massachusetts uh, Beer Week, uh, they have announced that there is a whiskey collab going on, and Berkshire Mountain Distillers has actually worked together with a whole bunch of mass uh, breweries, like folks that we've had on the, the podcast before, like Jack's Abbey, uh, the folks from Sam Adams, folks from Harpoon, uh, Big Elm, and the one that amuses me the most is Spencer's Trappist. Remember, Spencer's is America's first Trappist brewery, and they use their beer to go and make whiskey with. So now we actually have an American Trappist whiskey. I love it. <laughs> yeah, really. Who would have thought? <laughs> but just uh, interesting to see like another different way of talking about uh, doing sort of celebrating the the beer and also doing some crossover with the whiskey world, which of course, I mean, let's face it, a lot of beer lovers love whiskey too. So we'll include a link to that. And so you can actually go and find out where you can actually get your hands on a Spencer's Trappist American whiskey. Or other products. Uh, but in the meanwhile, I want to finish this Orval, and I'm debating opening a second bottle. <laughs> hey, man, save some for me. You get your own. You said you could find it easily. Yeah, yeah well, I, I can I can find it. I, I have found it. Actually, I found it in a grocery store. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get out of here and head over to the brewery, shall we? Let's. We're going to take a break here so you can listen to some messages from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll be over in the brewery. See you there. Yakima Chief Hops is a proud supporter of the global homebrewing community. We believe that homebrewers are at the true heart of craft beer. YCH is dedicated to supplying the brewing hobbyists, the homebrew side hustlers, and the late-night garage brewers with the same cutting-edge quality hop products as the brewers working on a 90-barrel tank. Yakima Chief is pleased to introduce the latest product in hop innovation right out of the R&D lab, Cryopop Original Blend. Combining their proprietary cryogenic hop processing technology with groundbreaking lab analysis, they've engineered a hop pellet packed with the most beer-soluble compounds to bring a true pop of tropical, stone fruit, and citrus aromas. Learn more at yakimachief.com. The Brew Deck Podcast features exclusive interviews with your favorite brewers and suppliers. Each episode highlights new trends and brewing tips from leaders in the industry to inspire your next brew. Listen to the Brew Deck Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back, and welcome to the brewery, where we get all this brewery stuff going on. We're going to uh, start off by talking about a new product that's out there for beer, and but it's made from wine grapes. Right. So this one popped up on the radar as well just recently, a product called Phantasm. The first place I heard about it, you remember the last episode we talked about thiol, uh, 
file free in use, right? The, they, they take all the bound files that they find in your malts or your hops and sort of bust them out and open and you get these wonderful tropical fruit aromas out of them. Well, that's all well and good from malt and hops, but what if you could boost it a little bit? Because don't we always need to step on the gas? And so there's a new product out there called Phantasm, and I found it via actually the Escarpment Labs folks and their old Thiol Libre yeast. They actually recommend using Phantasm with it. And Denny, yeah, you're right. It's grapes. Yeah, it is. Uh, the Phantasm comes from Sauvignon Blanc grapes from uh, New Zealand, from the Marlborough region. Uh, I've been lucky enough to actually drive through that region, and there are wineries everywhere. But it's very cool because uh, adding these to your beer produces intensified tropical fruit aromas, especially in really, really hoppy beers. Um, and, you know, I don't know the science. I probably couldn't explain it sensibly, even if I did. But I just think that it's a killer idea. Yeah, and we're already seeing beers out there. Uh, Weldworks, for instance, uh, was using it last year. Um, trying to think, uh, Other Half has also been using it. So it's interesting to see that this stuff is starting to pop up and, and people are starting to play with it. I know, uh, I think even my one of my local favorites, Green Cheek, has used it. So... Uh, people trying to push more and more tropical fruit aromas in all the different ways that they can. So if you can, yeah. if, you can if you can, I haven't seen it available at the homebrew level yet. But just keep in mind, if you see people talking about Phantasm, that's what they're talking about. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't doubt that it'll show up at the homebrew level eventually because thiols are the hot thing in homebrew. Absolutely. And so speaking of hot things in uh, homebrewing, and now jumping over to world news and world brewing, with all the recent news that's happening with Ukraine and Russia and all that fun stuff, uh, how can we drag a beer news story out of this or something for the brewery? Well, two things. One is that there's a style of beer that's actually, I guess, been growing there. And I had never heard about this until this one blog post came up from a Ukrainian uh, beer blogger. And she, uh, she wrote up uh, this whole thing about Ukrainian golden ale. And, I mean, you go and you look at this thing. It's somewhere between 6.1% to 7.5% alcohol, very lowly hops of 15 to 30 IBUs. It's golden but not super pale. It's not like straw yellow. Um, and the original gravities are all the way between 16 to 19 degrees Play-Doh. Go multiply that before to find out what you're talking about here. But it's interesting to me because it plays into what we were just talking about with Belgian pale ale because it's a lot of malt. It's a good amount of hops. But then it's still not like, you know, it's still using like an American yeast or a very neutral yeast while being influenced by uh, by Belgium. So it's got pale malt, wheat, and potentially some caramel in there. Blend in any sort of hops that you want, like older New World, uh, using a either a neutral yeast strain or something with a very restrained ph- uh, phenol profile. Uh, and then this was the one that really kind of tripped me up was... Also, an optional addition of coriander seeds in the whirlpool. Whoa! Yeah, so it's got a little bit of like pale ale, blonde, and wit all mixed together. Um, and apparently, this is a style that has been growing. Started off in in one of the local brew pubs, and is now even being produced by breweries that are owned by Carlsberg, for instance. So it, it is becoming a thing across uh, Ukraine. And uh, it plays into some of what is going on in the world right now, because the other one that's out there is there was a 
a brewery called Pravda that went uh, fairly viral for a a Molotov cocktail uh, photo, uh, saying that they were no longer producing beer at the moment. They were going to produce Molotov cocktails. And I guess I hadn't realized that right now alcohol is banned in, in Ukraine uh, during this situation. Uh, right? And But they are putting together, as we're recording this tomorrow, so it's going to be March 8th. So by the time the episode's released, it will be in the past. But we're going to we're going to make sure you have URLs for all the stuff that you need. But Pravda is putting together a live stream to talk about, you know, how they brew their beers, what beers they brew, and also putting together a sort of a fundraiser for various Ukrainian interests uh, to be able to to help sort of the country recover. And to do that, they are uh, putting together a bunch of recipes, and they've actually released them. And let me see, they've released one, two, three, four, five beers a dry hop strong ale which is related to this golden style a belgian triple an american style red ale a belgian wit beer and a ukrainian imperial stout and all of these recipes are online they're all in a google drive and um, oddly enough i wouldn't already download them because i'm me (laughs) and the uh the putin golden ale for instance uh you go and you look at it. Remember that style that we were talking about. You go and you're looking at their recipe sheet. It's 94% Pilsner, 4% of uh, Karaminic 2, and then 2% of wheat. And, of course, remember uh, in the Ukraine they grow a ton of wheat. So wheat being there it makes perfect sense. Uh, it's targeted at 17.5 degrees Play-Doh. So it's 1070, only uh, 27 IBUs. You got those malts in the mash. The mash has two steps, 63 degrees Celsius, so nice sacrification rest for 45 minutes and up to 77 for 10 minutes. And then it's boiled for 90 minutes with magnum bittering. Gotta love it. Uh, for 60 minutes. And then two doses of uh, perla, uh, one at 20 minutes and one at whirlpool. And then an addition of sugar as well in the boil at 10 minutes. And so that's all the hopping and the kind of the boil additions. And then when it goes into... Uh, the Whirlpool, they add 0.2 kilograms of coriander. So where a lot of us would be going and adding, uh, you know, our dry hops in that in that period of time, they're adding coriander. I think they're doing something like 19 barrels of beer, so it's a very tiny amount of coriander. It's not a, it's yeah, not, really. not a huge hit of coriander. And then dry hopped with sapphire uh, at 15 degrees Celsius and fermented at 22 degrees Celsius with good old USO5. So that gives you some idea of what the style is like. And to the point that later this month, I'm actually going to be doing a shop brew of my club. And we're going to take and split a Belgian pale ale recipe and make it so that one part's Belgian pale ale and the other part's Ukrainian golden ale. Cool. Yeah, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, But like I said, we will include links to the recipes. We'll include links to the stream. We'll include links for donations, all that sort of fun stuff in the show notes. So go and check it out. And Danny, what do you think of the idea of Ukrainian golden ale? It sounds very interesting. Uh, yeah, I'm really curious to try it and see see what the end result is like. And speaking of end results, somebody is back in the brewery. Yeah, um, I decided it was time to do a little test. Uh, I'm not going to call it an experiment because I have come to the uh, conclusion that uh, homebrew experiments, I mean, experiment implies science and that just doesn't happen in the homebrew world. Uh, so I'm doing a test 
to check out uh, dry hopping cold as opposed to traditional dry hopping. Uh, I brewed a 12-gallon batch of West Coast-style IPA. Uh, the other thing I'm testing is the uh, crisp plumage archer malt, uh, which sounds really fantastic. Smelled great in the mash tun. So I brewed uh, 12 gallons with crisp plumage archer, uh, bittered with uh, some veterans blend that I had around, and then uh, a, a five-minute addition of uh, some Michigan Chinook. They'll be dry hopped with both Cryopop Original Blend and uh, Cryo Cascade. But one of them will be dry hopped the way that I'm doing it most of the time, I should say all the time these days, by crashing to 35 degrees and dry hopping for 72 hours. The other one will be the old school way that we all used to do it, that will be dry hopped at 72 degrees for a week, right? Because that's what everybody used to do is, uh, you know, room temp uh, for a, a long time. Yeah, I used to do it too. Yeah, and I, I have been done doing that too, but, uh, you know, I finally got to the point where I was too impatient to go for two weeks. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, you know, and then, then, uh, I'll probably send some down to Drew and, uh, we'll just kind of see which one we prefer. Uh, I won't tell him which is which. Uh, you know, and the reason I say that this is a, a, a test rather than a real science experiment is that science happens when people replicate what you do and, uh, you know, come up with their own conclusions. And as far as I know, nobody else is going to be doing that. So this is, this is a test, not an experiment. And, uh, so far it's going real well, almost too well, um, my my fermentation is very strong. I pitched two packs of Lollaman BRY97 into each uh, into each half. I ended up with uh, six gallons of a 1067 wort. So I decided, to, you know, just just to be kosher, I would put in two packs of yeast into each one. Uh, I got very very strong fermentation by the next morning. The airlocks were pretty much just blowing continuously. Thinking that things were going well and being able to monitor the temperature of the fermenters by Wi-Fi, I didn't go out to the garage for a couple more days. And so yesterday I decided it was time to go take a look at things. And one of the fermenters had had a complete blowout. Now, this is six gallons of beer and an eight-gallon conical fermenter. And when I went out there... There was yeast all over the sides of the fermenter, the table it was sitting on, the floor. Um, apparently, the airlock had gotten plugged up from uh, all the the croissant from the fermentation being so vigorous. Oops. And it, yeah, it had just it had just like spewed yeast all over the place. Uh, the airlock was still in place, although it was full of of gunk. That's the official brewing word. So I, uh, I cleaned up the fermenter, uh, dried off the, uh, the top and put new airlock on it. Uh, I decided that I better learn from my mistake and went out there to check on it. First thing I noticed when I walked into the brewery was that there was no airlock on that fermenter anymore. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I said, what the hell? I'm looking around. I found the airlock eight feet away on the floor. Had <laughs> totally blown out of there. Uh, I mean, when I, when I replaced it yesterday, there was so much CO2 coming out of that fermenter. I, number one, I was not worried about, about it, but, uh, you know, 
it had just obviously gotten clogged again and instead of staying in the fermenter and blowing out croissant all over the fermenter like it happened before, it totally blew the airlock out. It's like, you know, I'm looking around going, okay, it's got to be here someplace. I was able to follow the trail of crap on the floor that it had spewed as it was flying uh, and, and eventually find it uh, sitting behind some other stuff about eight feet away from the fermenter. But uh, May I recommend the idea of a blow-off tube? <laughs> You know, I have never needed a blow-off tube on these fermenters before. I have fermented many six-gallon batches in these and never had anything like that happen. The other fermenter didn't do anything like that. I wonder if it's just uh, you know, I wonder if some of it's just the 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 amount of dry hop material in there or the hopping material or but both both were exactly the same at this point. Yeah, I know, but you know, the moon's gravitational pull was stronger on one of them. Yeah, yeah, right. Something like that, or or maybe maybe uh, one pack of yeast had one more cell, and that was it. Put it over the edge, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, so I guess then the question is, with this test, and we're gonna have to get down to the end of the fermentation of the beer and see how everything went, right? Right, and then decide whether or not it has to be rebrewed. Correct. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm not I'm not anticipating any any huge effect on the beer from this, but like you say, we really won't know until it's all fermented out and we see. Uh, but you know, I like I said, I don't think that it's going to have a major effect on the beer. Well, there's only one way to find out. That's, that's right. And for all you people who are saying, "Oh my God, your fermenter was open for like a whole day out in your filthy garage," it's like, yeah, well, beer's tough. Well, also you're positively evolving CO2 at the time. You still have the croissant up, you know. So yep, I mean, yep. I'm, you, you have some it's, protection it's, in place. Yeah, it's, it's no different than doing an open fermentation. Yep. Although in the case, in my case, I like to still prefer to have a piece of foil over everything. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's it's only like about an inch and a half opening. It's not that bad. Yep. There you go. One, well, and of course, I'll be back in the in the brewery. I just did my cream ales recently. Uh, but I got to gear up for Southern California Homebrewers Fest time. Ooh. You know, and I got to provide beer for that. So it's going to definitely become a busy beer season. And hopefully before too long, I'll be able to do it on 220. <laughs> yep. Finally got 220 installed in the garage. Woo-hoo! And solar. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> power, the power of the sun, baby. Yeah, that's right. Okay, let's head over to the lounge, shall we? Let's. When we come back, we'll be in the lounge talking to Chuck Macaluso, the Oregon State Homebrewer of the Year for 2021. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. Want to get discounts on homebrew supplies and save money at craft breweries? Join the American Homebrewers Association and save at more than 2,300 AHA member deal locations worldwide and online. Members enjoy discounts on pints, food, and merchandise, and 10 to 30% off online orders. Visit homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to check out the AHA member deals in your area and join the AHA. That's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental to join the American Homebrewers Association and access thousands of members-only discounts. It's 
just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Beer, 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 beer. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the lounge. I had the opportunity to uh, talk to Mr. Charles Macaluso recently. Drew wasn't available, so I got to do the whole thing myself. Uh, Chuck is the uh, Oregon State Home Brewer of the Year for 2021. Uh, he'll explain exactly what that is and how that works. But uh, he has been in the running for that several times. We've talked to him before when he was a runner-up. And, I mean, let's just face it, this guy makes darn good beer all the time so sit back relax and here's some tips from chuck hey everybody welcome to the lounge where we talk to brewers about brewing and today we have a return guest uh mr charles chuck macaluso who's the oregon state home brewer of the year once again how you doing today chuck uh very good denny thank Great. you for this invite Oh man, it is our pleasure. Um, it, I mean, it must be a a real trip to be a repeat winner of this, huh? Well, actually, this is the first time I've been to Oregon State Home Brewer Year to Ashbody. I've been close in previous years. I've had a second, a second, a third, and the top ten. <laughs> I've been close. I've been hanging in there. Twenty okay. twenty one was my year. Well, man, you know what? Uh, all of those add up to a lot of really good brewing. So, why don't, tell us a little bit about what the Oregon State Home Brewer of the Year Award is and, and how it works and what you got to do to get it. Well, in the snapshot, this started around 2015. Um, I'm a member of the Oregon Brew Crew Homebrew Club, and one of our members, Jason Barker, wanted to provide some recognition for homebrewers across the state of Oregon and southwest Washington, similar to um, what the state of Washington does. So he started developing this program, and there are certain homebrew competitions through the state of Oregon that need to meet his criteria for how the judging is done and um, that it's a very inclusive competition and that results are posted and that they can be verified. Once he accepts the competition into what's called the circuit, then uh, the word goes out on Ashbody that this particular beer competition, and we have, you know, some beers, many of them in Oregon, are part of the circuit. So homebrewers are encouraged to enter beers in, in any of the categories they'd like. You get points for first place in a particular category, or if you're best to show, second best to show. So how many competitions did you have to enter? Well, this year was seven, this past year. Oh, that's... I believe it was seven, and it was a slow year coming out of uh, 2020 with 2021. 2020 wasn't, but maybe I think we snuck in two of them before everything <laughs> locked down in Q1. So, yeah, we nothing much that year, and then it was really nice to get back into it um, last year. So did you enter a number of beers in each one of these competitions, or did you just focus on one? I 
actually brew many, many styles. So I would enter somewhere between six to ten beers for one of the, the local competitions if it had all the categories that were being judged. We had one homebrew competition. It was Heart of the Heart of Cascadia, which was all the colors of IPAs. So not as many. I entered just a couple there. Man, that and, is that's yeah, a lot of brewing. It is a lot, um, but I only do five-gallon batches, and I brew about 15 times a year. Wow. Um, but I'm able to turn them around pretty quick. Uh, I'll brew a five-gallon batch of beer, and, you know, I'll bottle some of it for competitions, and the rest of it goes on tap in the garage under the, uh, the keyser. And on brew days, I have friends come over, and it's a very social event for me because um, I don't like brewing by myself. I probably wouldn't brew if I had to just brew by myself. It's not a, it's just a social hobby. So they come over, they help drink my beer and help me clean up and, you know, give me moral support in the background. Wow, man, you get them to help you clean up. I might have people over when I'm brewing more often if I could work it that way. Daddy, <laughs> uh, it's pretty amazing. My friends will come over and after they've been over two or three times, they kind of know what to expect next. And I turn my head, I turn the other way and they're cleaning a pot for me, you know, and uh-huh. they're on it. So it's really helpful. Man, you have them well trained. Uh, it's a, it's a really good group of people. That's you know, there's great. sometimes on a brew day I'll have uh, ten, twelve people over. So it does become wow. a. Some people would say, "Well, Chuck, how do you brew and stay focused on a brew day when you've got ten people running around?" And <laughs> it's a lot of multitasking, but I get it done. So. Um, <laughs> You know, I'm just not that organized. When I have people over when I'm brewing, I just kind of like write the brew day off, and it's going to end up being whatever it is. Uh, so good on you for doing that. So how long have you been brewing, Chuck? I started in November 2009. Um, I kind of was late to the homebrewing scene. I didn't start homebrewing until I was 49. So I'll be 61 this year. So I'm kind of late to the game. I did enjoy craft beer before that, starting to go to festivals and, you know, partaking in the different uh, pubs around town, breweries. But a friend of mine encouraged me to start brewing, and I did. And uh, I was hooked right away. The first batch was probably like many people, just on the kitchen stove, an American pale ale. Um, and after that, I took everything into the garage, and right now I brew on a five-gallon liquid stand. Cool, man. Yeah, well, I, let me see. I guess I started when I was 45, and uh, I just hit 70. So uh, you got some time to go, buddy. Excellent. Good to know. <laughs> yeah, I hope to have more time and more flexibility in brewing this year because I do. I'm going to be re- retired from my current job here this summer, and then I'll open up a lot of other days and just weekends. Let me give you a tip for retirement. Don't write books or do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> you'll you'll have a lot more time for your retirement if you, if you follow that <laughs> advice. So, do you have a, a favorite style to brew or or drink? My favorite style to brew is an imperial stout. Oh my! And the different nuances that you can do with an imperial stout. Maybe my second favorite is American barley wine, then followed by an English barley wine. Those are my top three. If I had a fourth one, it'd be a Pilsner's. <laughs> so, so three three big beers and then something to uh, wash them down afterwards. Yeah, I, I, I tend to like the the punch a big beer can have the potential with the multiple layers of flavors as it warms up. Um, I kind of enjoy that, 
And I, when I drink, I drink at almost, you know, I don't drink a lot of beer. I sip beer. I'm more of a sipper. So if I have a, a nice, strong drink, beer in front of me, I could take my time with it. There's no rush. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely, man. Uh, I've found out that uh, as I get older, uh, quality counts for a whole lot more than quantity. And But, you know, like there's some amazing like Pilsner type style beers out there that, uh, you know, as much as good as they are and they're pretty incredible, I still just can't drink a whole lot of it. Um, it just kind of limits the system. Yeah, yeah, well, I, I agree, man. Uh, I, I found that the older I get, the the less I drink. You know, uh, there must be some sort of inverse mathematical relationship there. <laughs> so let's let's talk about how people let's, let's give them some tips about how to brew an award winning beer. I mean, I, I see that there are like maybe three major categories. There's the recipe, the ingredients you use, and and the process. So let's start with recipe. How do you come up with an award winning recipe? Well, none of my recipes are copied. They're all my own. Um, but I do do research online and in Zimmergy when it comes out and recommendations and articles that people read or, or, or write. And um, and I, I just kind of look at those as, as suggestions. And, you know, I've tasted the beers that I want to brew. I taste them out in town and get an idea of what they're all about. And then I will start digging into the material online and determine, you know, what type of hot profile am I looking for, uh, where do I want to get my grain from? What type of grain? That's kind of how I start. And usually, I would say, you know, maybe the first time version one is not exactly where I want it. So then I'll tweak it the next time. And I may tweak it a third time or a fourth time. So I, so I get it to where I feel I have a very good recipe um, that I can get very close to repeating. Boy, that is music to my ears because that is exactly what I do too. And Drew always tells me that I'm boring for rebrewing the same beer. But I'm like you, man. I want to get what I taste in my head, right? You know, you know what that beer is. And if you don't hit it right on the first time, you got to go back and tweak it, right? That's true. And I also tell people taste is taste. And if someone gives me feedback on my beer, I really appreciate the feedback from people who don't usually drink that style because I want to understand that from somebody that maybe doesn't have a favoritism for a style. So I really appreciate that kind of feedback. And I get quite a few of that on brew days. And I think, and I really, I don't think the folks that come over just tell me they like my beer because I can drink my beer and it's free. I, I really <laughs> ask them for feedback. And many of the people that come over are brewers themselves. So I ask yeah. for feedback there. Right, man. When you can get like like honest, constructive criticism from people, that is a great help I've found. That's right. It, something else I've learned over time is that I don't know everything about a brewing beer. I'm learning all the time. When I have other brewers open and they make suggestions on how I can improve my process, I really listen to them. And I've made changes over the, over the years based on what they suggested. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Feedback is a gift. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and, and it's great because I've found that a lot of times people make a suggestion for something that never even crossed my mind, you know, and I that that can be really, really helpful. So, yeah. so once you get the recipe, you got to get the ingredients to brew it. Do you have 
certain ingredients that you return to over and over? I mean, like, do you have a favorite brand of malt, or does it vary according to the beer that you're drinking, uh, or, or brewing, rather? I mean, and the same thing with hops and yeast, man. Are, are Do you have, like, favorite brands or types in general, or do you use specific stuff for each recipe? I brew with a lot of uh, Greece and Great Western malts at my local homebrew shop. And then uh, because I'm doing these stouts or and I'm doing the um, porters or some type of beer with a bunch of adjuncts, I've got a lot of small little nuance grains. I'll use different types of crystals, uh, crystal 20, crystal 60, crystal 80. Uh, most of that is, um, I would say, Brees or Wireman. It's really sometimes I have to go with what my homebrew shop has. So if, sure. they get their, if they're out of a particular brand but they have this one, I'll give it a try. I, so you don't have an issue with substituting, say, like one malt, uh, one brand of malt for another one, if if that's what you can get. If no, I don't. I don't have a big issue with it unless I use it and it doesn't turn out well. And you know, I get some, <laughs> you know, it doesn't. Uh, um, I don't get good attenuation or the gravity doesn't come out right or is not flavored. Then definitely I won't go back to it. Uh, but the homebrew shop I have has is pretty consistent with month to month uh, the same. Brands are there, and I'll occasionally bringing in some new ones to try, which I will. So, have you spent much time uh, experimenting with uh, any of the craft malts that are out there? I have not. I have not. Yeah, well, obviously, you're getting great results without them, so uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you. So, so let's go on to process. Let's let's talk about like. Once you get the recipe and the ingredients, are, are, what specific steps do you take for these beers? Uh, I'm, you know, uh, like like for an imperial stout, what would be your process in, in making that beer? Well, I think I want this first. My process needs to be as less stressful as possible. On brew oh days. yeah, so I love I, you. <laughs> I prepare for brew day. I have all. But the day before, I set up the garage completely with all the lines and everything ready to go. I put the water in, in the uh, in the tanks. I um, measure out the hops. I get the salt additions ready because I want. I treat my water for every brew. I uh, measure out the hops. I get everything ready and prepped and in the garage ready to go the day of brew day. So it's a matter of just flipping the switch per se and you know I start heating water up first thing in the morning usually around 8 30 in the morning that is I, I think a key I've tried brewing with just doing everything that morning and then I end up missing things or I'm not paying attention enough and and because it just isn't as much fun it's somewhat frustrating so I like prepping I think prepping is really really important ahead of time yeah I, I agree right. with that 100 percent man and one of the things I've done in my process in the last few years that have really turned, I thought, made my beers much more consistent is in the mash temperature. Before, when I was circulating mash, I would circulate with my pump. I, I, I was doing direct heat from underneath with the right. propane. Right. And, was, and, and, and that was kind of creating some issues. I'd have swings in the mash temperature or I might get too hot underneath and it would start to, I might get a vapor lock, would look, then it would look like a stuck mash. That was becoming a problem. But then I went and converted my 
pop rocket to a rims rocket uh-huh. um, with the con- external controller, and I can keep that temperature within a degree through the entire mash process. And it's so less stressful, so more consistent with the mouthfeel of the beers, the uh, the density of the beers, right? And when I'm doing a big imperial stout, I'm looking, I'm mashing at 155, 156. Right. So when I'm doing that, the last thing I need to do is have a problem with the stuck mash and temperatures are going wacky, wonky on me, or they're too low, or they're too high, and I just start denaturing molds. Um, so that has been extremely helpful. I had a friend who uh, would help me quite a bit trying to keep that flame on and off, on and off, and he felt like uh, he was out of a job once I got the, uh, <laughs> the rims rocket. Um, it was kind of boring for him, but there was so, plenty to do with it, those cleanup steps in between. So, <laughs> do you do you do step mashes for these big beers, or you just do a single temp? I do both, sure. When I do my Belgian beers or different types of beers that have a lot of wheat or some of these flake malts and stuff, I do step mashes. Right. Absolutely, I will do that. I'll do a rest that I may. It may sit there at 122 or 128, depending on the beer, for 15, 20 minutes, and then I'll take it back up to the uh-huh. final uh, final temp, 146, 147, 148 for some of those beers. I would say probably 75% of my beers are single infusion or single temp, and the other 25% are step. Right, right. That's kind and, of about the- Yeah, and I can do that with the uh, recirculating rims rocket. It allows me to do that and keep the work fed and... I get pretty good efficiency that way. So, you know, do you then just do single temperature mashes for, like, say, the Imperial Stout and stuff like that? Yes. That was a single temp mash. Absolutely. And I, I know that a lot of home brewers have gotten into this process of, like, adding dark malts during the sparge or something like that to uh, to reduce uh, tannin extraction and harshness from the dark malts. Is that something that you do, or do you just check them in with the mash? I really have only – I put it in with the mash. I The only time I'll keep it separate is if I'm doing, like, um, a black IPA, right. type of C, a CDA, then I will just put it in during the um, sparging phase. But otherwise, I do just mix it right in. I, I've done that a couple times, adding it later, and um, I didn't really see a big difference as far as the stringency from the grains, harshness or bitterness from the grain. I didn't, right. I didn't, I didn't see any of that at all. And you know, as long as you're uh, paying attention to your water and, and the pH and stuff, you might as well just go ahead and put them all in at once and uh, get it done with, huh? Oh, well, I do. Yeah, I do monitor the pH. Uh, beer, the software I use is Beersmith, and I'm able to really lock in my pH every time I do a, a, a brew day in the mash. And then I do water measurements at ho- at the house here four times a year, so that I because it does change slightly um, during the dry season, wet season. So I do treat my water for every day at every brew. Um, what, what turned me on to the water profile was I did a pro am with a brewery that used to exist called uh, Commons. And, oh, yeah, great brewery, great yeah, brewery. Yeah, fantastic. And Sean Burke, the uh, main brewer there, he really specialized in water treatment, and I learned a lot just from that one program I did with him, and it got me interested in how water can make a difference. Every piece of the process is important. I used to not do much with the water. I would just put in spring water, and uh, I started paying more attention to that, and I think I saw differences in my more hoppy type beers, my IPAs and pale ales started being brighter, crispier, 
um, I was able to to control that a bit better. Yeah, and let's face it, man. If you want to make award-winning beers, you have to pay attention to every little detail, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I don't try to take shortcuts I, at all. Um, if honest, I just kind of that way. If it says I have to do this mash for seventy-five minutes or an hour or. 90 minutes, it really depends sometimes. I just do, I just follow the software. When I start taking shortcuts and say, oh, I think it's probably got enough efficiency, it's probably converted enough already, I just don't do that. I, I, if I don't change my process much, then I have less deviation in the final product. Right. That's you, for sure. you know what, what to expect that you're going to get. Yeah. And I think also, you know, when I'm creating these recipes, you know, going back to that, one of the things that's helped me is becoming a beer judge, getting certified with VJCP, going and judging beers, and then talking to other certified trained people at the table. And you start learning about styles quite a bit that way, too. So when I when I brew a beer, and if I'm brewing a style I've never brewed before, um, that's really helped me to develop that recipe. It's just by talking to feedback and look watching and just looking at the BJCP guidelines because they are just guidelines. They're not rules or laws. They're just a guideline toward beer profile style. And, you know, you get a national judges, you're talking to them, the masters, even your certified and recognized judges. It's, it's a lot of fun that way to get feedback and help develop the palette for a certain style. Yeah, man, it gets back to that thing. Uh, having experienced brewers give you uh, good, honest feedback on your beer is always a positive thing. Yes, it is. So what advice would you give to other home brewers who aspire to knock you off the throne? Don't quit. Keep doing it. Um, <laughs> uh, I understand. I've judged beers. I've gotten feedback on so many competitions of beers I've entered, and I just sometimes – I may not quite understand the judges' feedback. It's difficult for judges um, to judge beers when they're judging so many beers, and um, you know they could be judging a particular style and be doing a, do a dozen beers. I know they're doing absolutely the best they can. I would say don't be discouraged necessarily by results you get from homebrew competitions or any competition you get feedback. Take it with a grain of salt. Look for trends in the scores. If you're entering that beer in multiple competitions and the scores are all over the place, then it just may be one judge is different than the other. But if your beers are scoring consistently within the two-point range, then that's probably pretty good feedback from the judges on a beer and maybe possible. That's great advice. Uh, you know, one thing I did that really helped me understand what the judges were trying to say is that when I would get a score sheet, I would sit down with a, a glass of the beer that they were judging and read through it and, and try and figure out how that beer related to what they were saying. And I found more often than not that uh, they were picking up stuff that, that I never could, and that was a really valuable experience for me. It is. It's, it's good. And if, uh, a, if you're going to be entering beers into a competition, you know, before you enter the beer, you know, one of the things folks will say is, well, taste it, you know, try it, make sure the beer is exactly which one. I would also add, have somebody else some beer 
and see what they think before you actually enter it because you may get some feedback that says, yeah, this is absolutely what I want to enter. Right. I guess I guess my thoughts on the beer are spot on or maybe maybe this is not quite the beer I want to enter. or Maybe I should enter it in a different subcategory. Maybe this is not the right one, you know, because a lot of times we'll, we'll make beers and it could f- closely fit two or three different categories. So you, sometimes right. it's just picking the right one. They're very close. Some of these. Yeah, that's that's really good advice, too, man. Um, OK, Chuck. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, we've been talking to Chuck Macaluso, the Oregon State Homebrewer of the Year for 2021. And who knows, maybe 2022, huh? Hey, I'm still brewing. <laughs> I, I hope so. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Thank you, Chuck. I really appreciate your time, man. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. So that's what uh, Chuck has to say about how to be a winning brewer. And I thought that his number one tip was uh, was very interesting and validating for me because he likes to brew things over and over and over again until he gets them right. Uh, something for which I often get ridicule, huh? I was going to say, do you feel seen, Denny? <laughs> yeah, man. It's like, finally, I know that I'm doing something right. Well, you know, even a broken clock. <laughs> That's right. That's right. No, man, but I just I just want you to know the next time you make fun of me for doing 13 test matches of something, all I'm going to say is Chuck. Well, see, except for it's different goals, right? Like I make fun of you because it's it's not a thing I could ever do. Although I say that and I've brewed my my test saison recipe how many times and I've brewed my cream ales how many times. Um, it's just like I'm not I'm not the kind of guy to go back and revisit like immediately and go tweak 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 that that's sort of anathema to me. But at the same time, if you're doing like what you want to do, or if you're trying to do what Chuck's trying to do, then it makes perfect sense. And of course, to me, I I still think the biggest tip for people to become better brewers is brew. Yep, exactly, and that's uh, that's what Chuck does. Yep. All right. Well, I think it's time for us to get out of the lounge and go get people on their way. All right, we're going to uh, take a quick break here, and when we come back, we will wrap things up. So please stick around. This season welcomes Y-East Laboratories' limited release, featuring the Frosted Lagers private collection. We invite you to embrace the chilly days to come with brewing strains suited to the occasion. 2002 Gambrina-style lager, 2035 American lager, and 2352 Munich lager too. Lagers have been called the brewer's beer, and we know this sentiment is shared among homebrewers and beer lovers alike. Their light, clean nature is ideal for expressing the fine nuances of your brewing ingredients, especially the floral and fruit notes, complex flavors, aromatics, and mouthfeel created by the yeast. Between your winter ales and experimental brews, try one of our latest releases in your next lager recipe. Visit yeastlab.com for more information on which styles pair best with these strains.
Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We are here for the big wrap-up of the show. No questions and answers today. But don't forget, if you want to get your question answered by us, email us at questions at experimentalbrew.com. Send us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Send us a text or a voicemail message at 626-765-1AL. That's right, because we need those questions uh, just to keep us sharp, see if we can figure out what's going on. So the quick tip today comes from that story that I just told you about my latest brewing adventure, and that is go back and check on your beer <laughs> the next day uh, and the day after that, pretty much every day. Uh, we've said this before, Drew has made the point, and now I'm making the point due to my experience, and I want you guys to know, no matter where you ferment, no matter what you're fermenting, get back out there the next day and check and see how it's going, and better check the day after that, too. Yeah, in fact, just go take a visit out to your brewery every once in a while. Shortly, my brewery will be my office as well, so... I won't be able to uh, to give myself any excuses. Yeah, yeah. Go say hi to your beer. Ask it how it's doing. Yeah. How are you doing, buddy? Are you feeling good? Multiplying enough. <laughs> All right. And then, of course, we got something other than beer because life sometimes requires something other than beer. And for me, a lot of times, that also means that life requires something like food. And a tip that I just recently started using a lot in my house was, you know, I like to make a chicken sandwich, right? You know, make like a little chicken thigh sandwich, and usually I prefer thighs over breasts because they're generally a lot better. Uh, they're more tasty. But use a mayo marinade, and it's very, very easy. The technique is just basically take your chicken, throw it in a bowl, put a little mayo on top of it, add whatever seasonings you want. So like lemon peel, garlic, garlic salt, paprika, pepper, whatever you want. Uh, I also do like some herbs de Provence if I'm feeling fancy and then just take that whole mix and massage it together into sort of a sauce and a marinade and coat the chicken with it. And you don't have to let it sit for very long, you know, let it sit for a couple minutes and then toss that into a pan and cook it off uh, at high heat. And what's really cool is that the mayo actually helps sort of form a little bit of a crust. It forms, you know, the, the oil that you need. It also adds some flavor and acidity to, to the chicken itself and it makes it really easy to make a very succulent piece of chicken fairly quickly. Um, and I know, Denny, you included a, a link from, I think it was Paula Dean, right? Um, yeah. For a spicy mayo chicken, which is pretty much exactly the same idea. It's a super versatile uh, technique. I use this all the time now to make chicken sandwiches, and my wife loves the chicken sandwiches, so go and do this. Uh, it's kind of somewhat akin to the idea of using mayo on a grilled cheese sandwich, although I still think that is... For centers of the highest magnitude. <laughs> yeah. And the great thing is that even if you're using chicken breast, the mayo keeps it really nice and moist. Uh, the the one that I do uh, is uh, chicken breast, and the mayo has uh, paprika and cayenne in it. It's quite good. That's the link we'll put up for you. There you go. And one last thing. I have been, uh, for the last year or so, looking for music to go to sleep by. And, and my, my first thought when I started doing that is, 
Imagine being the person who writes this music and you know that people aren't really going to hear more than about the first five minutes because it's music that you have specifically made for them to go to sleep by. And there's, yeah, I, I might have even mentioned that uh, there's like a, a Dreamtime channel on, uh, on Amazon Music that I was listening to. Well, recently I ran across the idea of solfeggio. Uh, this came apart about by uh, starting looking at the, 432 hertz tuning, uh, and I'll try not to get too geeky here, but uh, in in the music world, uh, there's a standard for tuning where the A above middle C is set to be 440 hertz. Many, many, many years ago, A was set to be 432 hertz, and it's thought that uh, doing that makes music that is more restful, that connects more with the more with less with your mind and, and, and more with your feelings or something like that. And in looking at that, I got into the idea of solfeggio, which is uh, music based on six specific frequencies. Uh, solfeggio comes from the sola, fa, all that kind of stuff thing. And theoretically, these are healing frequencies. Now, I'm not going to get into that and testify about that because I don't know. Uh, but each frequency, it's like 174 hertz removes pain. Uh, 417 hertz facilitates change. Mm. 396 hertz liberates your fear and guilt, right? It's like, yeah, I don't, well, I don't I need don't my know. fear and guilt liberated. They're already pretty damn free. <laughs> yeah, right. But the, but the thing is that these things are great for giving you sound sleep and, and getting you there quickly. Um, what I'm listening to, basically it's like one chord that is just kind of held, but as, as you listen to a different kind of tones fade in and out, it's a nice soft sound, kind of like vocal or, you know, synthesized vocals, something like that. Uh, but I have actually been able to quantify via my Fitbit that my deep sleep has about tripled since I started listening to this stuff going to sleep. And I am usually fast asleep within five or six minutes. So <laughs> admittedly, I don't have a job to worry about. I do have Drew to worry about, and that's, you know, almost as bad. Oh, thanks, Dad. Yeah. But uh, I would say that if you really want something to enhance your sleep, something to really calm you out before you go to sleep laying in bed check out solfeggio frequency music uh again on amazon music there's a, a couple different things you can listen to there and i'm sure they're all over the place but i'm digging it uh hopefully you will too there you go sounds groovy man <laughs> yeah it is and if anybody feels healed let me know yeah, my, my wife has actually used uh, some of that stuff in the past to help her get to sleep when she's having problems Yep, yep. It's uh, it, it it really is very effective, at least for me. So yeah. All right, out of here, out of here. Thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at EXP Brewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew is on the homebrewing subreddit and the Slack homebrewing channel. I hang out on a bunch of different forums, the AHA discussion forum, the beer garden at the brew house, a lot of time on Facebook, too. So look around. You'll probably find me somewhere. 
If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, or recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. If you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And, of course, you can always shoot us a voicemail, a text, whatever you want, uh, an obscene phone call maybe, at 626-765-1-ALE. That's 626-765-1253. So until next time, remember to always brew experimentally. Or brew wacky. And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing. (laughs) 